We good? Yeah, we're 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 on. We're on. Okay. We're hot. These mics are hot. My coffee is hot. Does this look weird? <laughs> The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. How big is it? It's so big. Become a goddamn member. Hi, Divers Alert Network Emergency Line. Can you please hold? <laughs> Hi, Divers Alert <laughs> It was a busy season. Okay, so welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast for part three of the... Great Dive Podcast. Of the Great Dive Podcast. <laughs> Goddamn Annual Report 2018. Part three. Now this... This annual report's big. How big is it? It's so big. <laughs> it's so big that when his mama sits around the house, she sit around the house. It's so big. <laughs> okay, we're going to have to edit that part. <laughs> <laughs> the jokes just keep coming. No, so it, it's it's big. I mean, there's a ton of info in here. I mean, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks going through this. So this let's, is, a, again, this is, a, this is the edited, <laughs> edited, edited report. Uh, just with some some fun info that we thought would be relevant to our listening audience. Do yourself a favor and uh, you know check it out yourselves if you if you haven't already. One, if you're not a Dan member, become a Dan member. Get uh, become you know, a goddamn member. Jesus Christ. <laughs> do do your part. Help Dan out in that respect. Check out the annual report on their website, diversalertnetwork.org. You can go there. You can join. You can get your membership there and get into all these past and present reports. A lot of really good info, and you can go through this nice and slowly on your own. Or play back these episodes and follow along with us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what else are you going to do on a Friday, Saturday night? This new issue of Dive Training Magazine and the March-April 2018 issue in the Diving Notes and News, they also mentioned that the 30th anniversary edition of the annual Diving Report has been released. And in there, they mentioned that this 30th anniversary edition shows that between 1981 and 2016, Dan medical staff answered 86,336 emergency calls, 269,290 information calls, and 64,830 emails for a total of nearly half a million inquiries over these years. And the report identifies that drowning and heart attack are the leading causes of death between 92 and 2015. And it reveals two notable trends that uh, we've been talking about here quite a bit. And as a community, divers are getting older and heavier. I was going to say older and fatter, but they, they did, said they it did for the, me. They did the politically uh, yeah, correct they version. They tried to be nice. But, oh, coincidentally, the population's getting older and fatter. Correct. Also, and, coincidentally, uh, we're not drawing in enough 
young people. Definitely not. So in order to make the community safer, we just got to get a younger audience. So the statistics are skewed that way. Well, young people... And we'll get rid of the problems. We don't have to worry about <laughs> learning buoyancy control and, and staying fit and healthy. Well, let me ask you this. So we're not drawing in enough young people. And the whole idea behind uh, let's make this class as stupid, I mean, as easy as possible was to draw people in who maybe don't have the disposable time and then they make it as cheap as possible because they believe that that will draw draw them in too well hey, do you listen. think maybe they shot themselves in the foot because that's not a good recipe to keep and retain and draw in new members they well, the numbers are getting low so i got a good idea for getting more people in let's lower the age so people can get their toddlers in <laughs> <laughs> do not give them any ideas. I, I wouldn't doubt if it's already out there. I wouldn't doubt if their rebreather baby is out there. I got my rebreather baby specialty. I'm a rebreather baby dive master. <laughs> that's that's coming. It's down the pipeline. Okay, so uh, the volume of calls to Dan's medical department, uh, 2015, there were nearly 12,000 calls or emails. Uh, that requested assistance, information, or consultation. So the medical staff answered 3,589 calls requiring assistance, 5,954 calls requesting medical information, 2,015 email inquiries. What do you mean? Like requesting information about the accident report or if a person is dead? Or do do they clarify that at all? In addition, there were 43 calls about fatalities. The 3,589 callers asked Dan for assistance with acute health issues. Well, over 2,000 of them concerning dive-related issues and uh, 1,400 of them concerning health issues not related to a dive. (laughs) Hey, my my grandma's having a little chest pain. Is she diving? No, but I don't know. You guys seem like... I truly and honestly Hello. am not surprised by anything that anyone Hello, does Dan. anymore. <laughs> hey, my son twisted his this, ankle. Yeah, yeah, is this Divers Alert Network? Uh, can we order a pizza? It, I am. I would not be surprised. I just would oh, not be surprised. That should be in this report. Like, how many ridiculous, absolutely calls. unassociated calls right. and emails do they get? Exactly. I, that's what I mean by I would not be surprised by anything that people do anymore. Divers Alert Network, how can I help you? Uh, hi, Divers Alert Network. I have a small problem. I, I'm hoping you can help me oh, with it. Oh, yeah. We, that's what we're here for, sir. Excellent. I knew you would be the one to call. I uh, recently discovered uh, by accident that my wife has been cheating on me for the past six to eight months at least. So, well, so what does that got anything to do with us? Well, she's she's leaving me for him, and they're going to go diving now. So <laughs> can you help me? <laughs> In the, crib, your, in the Caribbean? Ay, ay, ay. Okay, so let's... Um, obviously, um, as may be expected, ear and sinus barrel trauma was the most common health issue reported. It is likely that many more divers experience some degree of ear and sinus barrel trauma, but don't actually report it because they handle it on their own or whatever, right? Decompression... Because they're not little sissy babies. <laughs> Decompression sickness was the second most common dive-related reason for calls. Of the reported cases, uh, type 2 included 34 cases of suspected inner ear decompression sickness, and cutaneous decompression sickness was 
quite common. Uh, so skin bends. Yeah, skin bends. It appears that cutaneous DCS has been reported more often in the recent years, but some divers still fail to recognize it. So I'm assuming that's uh, just more information's coming out about it. Yeah. People are realizing, oh, shit, this might be a case of the skin bends. Yeah. Where before. in the past, they were just like, wow, he's got this weird rash. Exactly. That's uh, People are becoming more educated, so they you know, will call up now. So they go through in the report um, about a little bit more information about skin bends. Uh, they go through some different uh, photos and cases. Uh, th- that's kind of interesting. It'll give you a bit more information. Um, but, I mean, this is like a class. So case 2-01, classic case of skin itching and modeling. The caller was... Is this a model? Is he a model? Modeling. M-O-T. That is not a model's body. Mot. <laughs> Mot. Mot like my, ni- Mot, like my name, Mot. Okay. Mot. Okay, Motling. Motling. It might be an English word. Motling. Motling. No, it's it could Mot- be Irish. M-O-T-T-L-I-N-G. On St. Patty's Day. It is coming up. I... The caller was the wife of a diver who, after a single day of diving, developed itching and marbling across his abdomen. Hello, I'm the wife of a diver. My husband has developed modeling. Well, have you called Glamour Magazine? (laughs) Have you called GQ? (laughs) The symptoms occurred approximately 60 minutes after his last dive. She said, it looks just like the pictures of skin bends I see on the internet. It just shows you, like, in the world today, like, should we go to the doctor? No, no. we're going to Google. Right. We're going to check WebMD. And yeah. I know doctors are like, oh, I hate the f-ing internet. I just want to. Well, just like, you know, working in the dive shop. Oh, yeah. People yeah. come in and I saw this or I read this or even as an instructor there, you know, I know what I used to have to deal with with the fundies class. It was like, I read this and yes, it's information on the internet, but there's a huge part missing, you know. You can't just read it and know it. Same thing with the skin bends here. Although I do have to believe that a picture of a sign and it matches identically. You, oh, yeah, you yeah. Gotta, so it's I helpful, get, I, get, I guess. I get it. yeah. It's a double-edged sword. So his dive profiles on air were as follows. Dive number one, 65 feet, 20 meters for 80 minutes. Surface interval of one hour and five minutes. Dive two, 64 feet for 71 minutes. So pretty typical dive profiles you know i mean because i'm sure these are multi-level profiles so it's yeah. not 65 feet box yeah. dive you know for the full 80 minutes i'm sure and, and, it and also... if they showed it i mean one thing that would be nice is if they actually showed in there some sort the of graph, an average man. depth depth you average know realizing depth, the that graph, hey, the... 60 for 80 but he was really in you know 30 feet for right 70 and, of the and 80 minutes as well how fast did he come up from that last 30 feet to the surface how how long of did he do any safety stops and you know even a lot of folks doing safety stops they'll do their 15 foot stop and then shoot right up and after two dives you know an hour plus in the 60 foot range so you're doing three addas for an hour and you're only an hour in between Mm, i don't know i right i don't have a problem with it but people that i don't know do do you let me ask you this do you think Divers who dive more often are less likely to be bent. We don't get that information. That's what I'm getting. Oh, okay, so let's let's, let's yeah. hit, oh, that, hit what happened. So back to so we, back to your regularly scheduled program. So Dan recommended prompt evaluation at the closest emergency department. 
the pictures that they sent to them had uh, showed typical skin modeling of the abdomen. The diver was seen in a local emergency department. Although no neurological or other DCS symptoms were found, the diver was treated with surface oxygen for two hours. His symptoms improved and had resolved by the next morning. The treating physician advised the diver not to dive for six days and to dive more conservatively. When he resumed diving, following a follow-up call 10 days later, the diver reported that he was back to diving, but was diving more conservatively and using enriched air nitrox. He had not had any problems since. No erectile dysfunction? Not in this case. (laughs) That's what I've always heard about skin bends, is that they usually will resolve themselves without any interaction, you know, any further action, but you can uh, speed up the heal process by breathing some surface O2. And I've seen it in cave country, uh, people getting bent, getting skin bends on cave dives, and they just breathe O2 on the way home. And a lot of times, by the next day, it's you know, right. it's basically yeah, well, gone. Yeah, surface oxygen, hours, it's yeah, gone. yeah. Does, does wonders. So case 206 was a case of abdominal abdominal itching the abdominal snowman the abominable <laughs> the abdominal snowman he had abominable had itching <laughs> abominable abdominal itching and modeling associated with neurological symptoms this diver exceeded the no decompression limit on her first dive 90 feet on air and did the required decompression steps dives 2 and 3 were consecutively shallow or 60 feet and 50 feet and on nitrox she began to feel itching one hour after her last dive. During the boat ride to shore, she noticed major rash-like modeling after using a hot tub. On her flight home the next day, she felt superficial abdominal pain. After two days, her symptoms were still evident, and she was admitted for evaluation and treatment. Lab tests and a chest x-ray were normal. A neurological examination showed poor mentation, confusion, confabulating answers, poor performance on the Romberg test, and a minor abdominal rash. After an HBO treatment, hyperbaric oxygen treatment, her mentation was greatly improved and her Romberg results were normal. The rash and itching resolved. Her only remaining symptom was superficial abdominal pain and tenderness on touch. At a follow-up appointment seven days later, she reported she was back to normal. Okay, so next one. Skin modeling with cerebral neurological symptoms, case 209. The caller had noticed itching across her abdomen, a mottled rash, and deep muscle pain several hours following the last of six dives over two days. The itching began approximately three hours after the end of her last dive. Her symptoms had gotten progressively worse in the previous two hours, and she was seeking suggestions. After Have a beer! (laughs) <laughs> she admitted to having had some trouble equalizing dur- her, during her descents and ascents, but otherwise had no issues during her dives. She did not have her computer with her. It was in her dive locker, so she reported her dive profiles as she remembered them. Her estimated dive profiles, all on 30% nitrox, were as follows. Day one, 70 feet for 60 minutes, two-hour surface interval, 50 feet for 50 minutes. Day two, she did... Um, 90 feet for 55 minutes, hour surface interval, 60 feet for 50 minutes, two-hour surface interval, a third dive to 70 feet for 50 minutes, unknown surface interval, and a fourth dive to 40 feet for 55 minutes. So those those uh, mid-range, you know, NDL dives, I mean, that... that Plus, especially, over a period of time. Yeah, like, it, it's... 
and those NDL dives get get pretty penalized on well, yeah. on bottom time. So well, it, the thing about the NDL t- dives, James, e, there's no such thing as no decompression dive. So the, it's a kind of a, correct, obviously, and everybody knows this. You've heard this, but this is evidenced right here as you've accumulated that nitrogen over a period of four days. Is that correct? That's four days in multiple dives, and maybe the ascent rates weren't great and or didn't perform good stops and or popping up from that 10-foot stop like, or that 15-foot safety stop. Don't we see that? I mean, I see that a lot. Yeah, they're doing the 15-foot safety stop, but then they just shoot up from 15 feet. Uh, Who knows what the, the whole profile looked like, but when you're looking at a schedule like that, which is pretty typical on a little vacation, right? Actually, that's probably well, well, actually, well, it's pretty typical on a little dive yeah, vacation. Yeah, pretty typical on, on a dive vacation for sure. So she she called seeking referrals for follow-up the after after running through uh, table six ride and then two table fives. So, so she did a total of three. Yikes. Yeah, yeah. So they gave her two follow-up treatments. Um, so she, followed, she called for a follow-up. Uh, the treating physician had recommended that she wait six months before returning to diving. She was a volunteer diver at a local aquarium where she typically did dives in the 15 to 20 foot range. She asked if she might be able to get back in the water at the aquarium sooner than six months. She had been diving for eight years and had done about 250 dives, excluding aquarium dives. She had never had problems previously. She was advised to discuss her health and her diving practices with an experienced dive physician before she returned to diving. So again, I'm, I'm sure this is Dan going, I hear what you're saying, but I don't mm-hmm. necessarily believe and confirm everything you're saying. You need to, over the phone, you need yeah. to sit down with a well, with a diving doctor yeah. that can look at yeah. your history and, and figure out you know, well, what happened. Any doctor worth their salt is not going to diagnose over the telephone nor give a advice like, oh yeah, you're good to go. I learned that a long time ago working with docs. Is the, the, the ones worth their salt would never do that. They would never diagnose on the phone based on the patient's stated signs and symptoms. They would never do that. That's crazy talk. They would always say, you need to go see, physically see a physician and have them look at you and evaluate the, you themselves. Bravo, Dan. I mean, they're doing the right thing. So There we go. So, should. All right, so let's move into uh, these uh, type 2 hits. So a possible DCS2 classification was initially assigned in 279 cases. A follow-up was attempted in all but 22 of them where contact information was not available. In 129 cases, the follow-up was completed and 13 cases were marked for long-term follow-up. Type 2 DCS may manifest itself with neurological and cardiorespiratory symptoms. The most common are symptoms and signs of spinal cord or brain and inner ear injuries. In severe cases, divers may feel excessive fatigue. Among the cases of DCS, those involving neurological symptoms, meaning DCS type 2, are more common than those involving only joint and muscle pain and skin rash type 1. This is because divers and medical professionals are more likely to call Dan for assistance and consultation for severe cases than for cases of DCS type 1 only, which is perceived as being much milder. Following, and then we're going to get into a couple of these cases. So what they're saying is these are the case numbers, but it's not necessarily li- linear yeah. linear to yeah. what's really happening in the real world because right. it's like the the you know the ear barrel trauma, you know all the or I should say like all and, and all the near misses. Yeah, that just flat out you know, don't not reported. Yeah, yeah. There's means, yeah. the you know twelve thousand calls that they received 
in this 2015 time range, but there's probably double that, doubled or triple that <laughs> yeah. that they just never called yeah. about it. And they just said, "Woo, well, I'm gonna take I'm gonna take a couple of years of diving off." That's the or I'm gonna I'm gonna go get a set of golf clubs. There you go. I was gonna say that's the you know the rub, I guess, if you will, about these dive accident reports is you're not getting a clear picture. You're getting something. It's better than nothing, right? But you're not really getting a clear picture of all the near misses because diving is very forgiving in many respects. So that, and that's what the agencies rely on is the statistics, and that's all they report: this many number of accidents, the, this many deaths per whatever million of dives. But what's not reported that does not make it into the statistics are the near misses, are the you almost died, you know, all the ridiculousness that we see every weekend at the quarry. Sure. You know, that doesn't ever make the report, and you, you look at it and you go, thank God nothing serious happened to them. And again, it's a testament to the, the forgiveness, the, the ability of diving. You can still bounce back after doing something extremely stupid or very unskilled. You, you, know, you completely lack any skill, knowledge, or ability of scuba diving, and you're in there with the equipment, breathing, and you live. And that's how they yeah, dive, yeah. you know. Doesn't make the stats. And so many people are, are you know, they're, they're showed the shaken up pop bottle in their scuba class. Yeah. And they expect that, well, the bends is either I'm brain dead, you know. Right, uh, yeah. You're or, crippled. You're or crippled. I'm totally fine. Yeah. You know? You're crippled and your head's exploding. Right. Oh, you're good. Where, where in reality, it's a huge gray range, yeah. you know, from totally fine to you know, skin paralyzed you yeah. know from the from the neck down yeah you know you had that all those grades in between you know like the skin bends like a little bit of joint pain like some some tiredness you're you're extremely tired yeah that's that's the, the yeah, that's the the one end and, and exactly. the paralysis being the other yes end. exactly so let's uh get into your erectile dysfunction <laughs> Case 210, spinal injury with residual bladder and dysfunction caused by, what do you think? What caused it? I'm going to say diving, uh, coming up too quick. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Spinal injury with residual bladder dysfunction caused by rapid ascent. The patient had done a rapid ascent from a depth of about 30 feet and within 10 minutes of surfacing had experienced numbness in his toes. Wow. How long does it say how long he was at 30 feet for? The sensation rapidly progressed up his legs as far as his thighs. This was followed by numbness in his fingers that progressed up his arms as far as his shoulders. He was found to have a staggering gait and could not pass urine. Neurological testing confirmed that he had general peripheral loss of sensation and motor weakness. So the diver had done two dives on the day in question. The maximum depth of his first dive was 70 feet, 21 meters, and his second dive to 57 feet, 17 meters. His bottom times and the surface intervals are not known. During his ascent, about 38 minutes into the dive, the diver erroneously inflated his BCD instead of deflating it and was launched to the surface from a depth of 30 feet. Erroneously. Symptom onset came within 10 minutes, and his symptoms progressed from numbness to motor weakness, affecting both his legs and arms. When you, when you erroneously inflate your BCD, I'm trying to figure out, is that just like you laid on the button? You laid on the inflator button? Do you think that's what he did, or do you think oh. he, he was like... And wasn't noticing oh, no. that he's. It sounds to me like he, he erroneously he did. Lifted it up. Yeah. And by protocol, it. you know, yeah. and instead of hitting the dump button, right. hit the inflator button. Then okay. I, may, I may have erroneously. My legs hit hurt. My, <laughs> I can't feel my wee wee. <laughs> <laughs> 
so 30 feet to the surface immediately, right? So yes. even if he was only at, at depth for five minutes yeah, on like the dive, right? His, mm-hmm. his fast tissues in his body mm-hmm. are 50% loaded. Even just dropping down for five minutes to do something and then shooting right up to the surface thinking, nah, I'm just, I was just down for five minutes, I can be fine. In reality, those, those blood bloody tissues, those highly perfused tissues, I mean, they're already 50% loaded. So there's really never a reason where a fast ascent is going to make sense. No. Especially from 30 feet up to the surface. Yeah, you just half the atmosphere is right there. That's, yeah, you, you uh, just you just doubled that bubble minimum. Yeah, it's it's not good. So yeah, they it's ran not him the through right the right thing to do. So they ran him through the rail. He received a total of five uh, table six rides, Yikes. one per day, and experienced a full return of motor strength in both of his arms and legs. But he could still not pass urine. Uh, urinary catheter was removed on days two and five to check urinary function. And he was unable to urinate, uh, and they replaced the catheter. Did he ever re-achieve the ability to micturate, urinate, whatever-nate? The advice the Dan expert gave was to consider one or two additional sessions of hyperbaric oxygen and to consider a table nine ride, uh, stopping if no additional objective neurological improvement was noticed after treatment. The expert also advised that the patient's bladder function might improve with time. An early urological consult was suggested to discuss ongoing rehabilitation as well as ongoing catheterization and bladder training. Bladder training, eh? Do you get a card for that? <laughs> so that's uh, that's pretty rough there. Um trying to remember what the table nine is i remember the table six was pretty much the the one you gave to everybody yeah so table uh, i you know table six is basically known as the standard treatment standard of care it's it's a uh, a combination of breathing pure oxygen breathing pure air they're all combination they run it at a that uh they take you down to three atas you're breathing pure o2 for 20 minutes you're breathing air for five minutes pure o2 for 20 minutes air for five minutes pure o2 for 20 minutes and then they slowly start bringing you up so table nine uh does a maximum depth of 45 feet instead of 60 so it's a shallower one but it's it's a uh, it's a longer run on o2 yeah um and then it's a uh still a a short run but it's all basically take you down to 45 feet 30 minutes on o2 five minutes on air you know and they just repeat that cycle and then they bring you up to the surface so it's not as staged yeah as as the table six run just get down there and breathe oxygen for a long time yeah yeah so here we've got a, a case 212 multi-system presentation possibly associated with a PFO. Caller reported that she had been diving in the Caribbean when she experienced DCS type 2 symptoms, vision changes and pain in her left shoulder and left hip. She was treated at a local hyperbaric oxygen facility with a table 6 ride and experienced complete relief. She was cleared to fly by the treating physician. Her call came after the first leg of her flight. She reported that prior to the flight, she'd experienced a return of some pain on her left side and in her left arm and a recurrence of the vision changes. She still had two legs to go on her flight and was concerned about the possibility of a recurrence of DCS. In her opinion, she, she was an undeserved DCS hit. She had been doing technical dive training at a maximum depth of 173 feet, 53 meters with 20 minutes of bottom time and a total run time of 61 minutes. She had completed all deco stops and safety stops per her dive plan and her dive computer. Her bottom gas was air and her first deco gas was 38% nitrox and her second deco gas was 60% nitrox. 
The red in the graph below shows the ceilings, blah, blah, blah. Patient reported with, uh, on a follow-up, uh, the patient reported with the following email. Thanks for following up. I am feeling well now, but for three weeks after the hit, I had a lot of fatigue and slept a lot. I was also told I have been repeating myself a bit, which I hardly ever did, so it was noticeable. The past two weeks, I felt that I got most of my energy back. I followed up with a dive specialist. I had a return of visual disturbances within 12 hours of returning back home, which is at 5,600 feet of elevation. The hyperbaric doctor thought the symptoms were related to DCS. Taking into consideration the severity of her exposure, a deep dive with mandatory decompression, the proximity of her symptoms, onset time, and her decompression period, and the resolution of her symptoms under hyperbaric oxygen therapy, a diagnosis of DCS with neurological, cutaneous, and osteomuscular manifestations becomes more likely. Association with PFO in such cases is very common. And in this case, the PFO test did come back with a positive. When there are high venous gas bubble loads in patients who have right-to-left intracardiac communication, a symptomatic paradoxical embolus is likely. Many of this patient's symptoms are, in fact, typical of an air gas embolism. So she had a PFO, which basically was a little hole in her heart that uh, just sent that bubble instead of going to the lungs to be filtered out, just dumped it back over to the arterial side and repumped back through her body. Right, so the bubbles never got filtered out through the lungs, which is the lungs are a great bubble filter. Well, I, I mean, mean, I mean so, I, no, so I is it the, is it the, yeah, I wouldn't do the deep air with those, those deco gases, with those, uh, it wouldn't be my pick, but you could see that if you're, if you're doing a computer dive, which is, I would say yeah. 90% mm-hmm. of the technical divers mm-hmm. out there are just, you know, they just paid for that next class and, and they're, all they're doing is right. they're just following the computer and it doesn't really matter. Like you can plug any mix right. in there, you're, you're right. you know, and then the computer is going to just figure out whatever the model is to get you up, you know, whether that's the smart Mm -hmm. one, whether you're utilizing all the advantages and different theories out there for what I would say would be better decompression or not, well, it's still going to give you a schedule to get you home. Right. You're 100% right. You can get home with anything. I mean, you can just dive air the whole thing. You don't have to deco on nitrox. Nitrox is supposed to speed up your decompression. So, uh but the computer will recalculate depending on what you're breathing uh, on the way up and on the in on the bottom as well. So case two fourteen. Should I wait until tomorrow to be seen or be seen now? Right now. The caller, a fifty one year old male diver, said his legs felt weak and possibly numb or tingly. He said he had done a series of three dives that day. After the last of his three dives, he became aware that his legs felt odd. You shall do these three dives. These dives three you shall do. He asked whether he should wait to see if he improved or should seek care that night. Dan advised that with the symptoms he described, it would be best interest to be seen that night, and he was referred to a local hospital, which was good. The diver reported that he had been admitted the previous night and treated with a table six with two extensions, and he also received a table five as a tailing treatment that next morning. Very common. 20 days later, patient called again. He said he was still having residual symptoms, noting that he felt as if he had soaked his lower limbs in cold water, but added that his symptoms were improving with time. He stated that he kept looking at his diet profiles and still could not pinpoint what he did wrong. Is he a uh, specialist? 
some kind of dive specialist? What is he? Is he an instructor? No, just a 51-year-old diver. I'm a 51-year-old diver. Leg weakness, numbness, and tingling soon after a dive are serious symptoms. They are very likely caused by diving and may worsen over time. Divers with such symptoms should seek evaluation at the nearest medical treatment facility. And anyone with such symptoms should not dive. Partial improvement, as in cases, does not exclude DCS. The dive profiles this patient provided appear multi-level and typically would not cause symptoms, but they are not innocuous and risk-free. DCS is a probabilistic event that can occur even in divers who are precisely following the directions derived from mathematical equations. Well, yes, because every human body is different and the metabolism is different and, you know, the circumstances day-to-day change. So, yes, you change day-to-day. So... Following all the rules doesn't guarantee success. No, and so when people look at trying to stay stay or trying to stay safe as a diver, I mean the first thing that they do, and it's probably a, a a matter of being you know just taught or, just or a, a lack of being taught. They get a knife. real decompression in in a scuba class. Is they get a I just, big knife. I need a good computer. Right? True. I, I need. To I know buy you're a trying back. to make a serious a... point. And I'm <laughs> with you. Sorry. <laughs> But go ahead, say that again. The first thing yeah. they do, yeah. So, I mean, the first thing divers do, they go through a scuba class, and they're not really taught about decompression, you know, other than buy a dive computer if it beeps, come up, you know. So they're they're taught to just safety stuff. Yeah, well, obviously, the five hundred dollar computer is better than the hundred ninety nine dollar computer, and the thousand dollar computer's got to be better than the five hundred dollar computer. So just buy a computer that's the safest, and it's gonna it's gonna keep you from having these issues. But that's not really the case. You need to be able to understand what's going on in you personally. Uh, bring what you really know about your body mm-hmm. into what that computer screen's showing you, and and you you stand dive, a better chance. That, yeah, you yeah. dive that to to keeping yourself as advantageous as you can. Right, you're tired, you're jet lagged, you are out of shape, you're obese, you are not eating well. All those things influence it, you know. So you, what would you do, James? You're you go on vacation. There's a huge time difference, so you're jet lagged. You're dehydrated from flying because flying dehydrates you tremendously, as does diving over a week's period of time. What do you do? I know what I do when I dive over, a, you know, like if I go away for two weeks, I'm diving every day. Well, I'm I'm in nitrox for sure. I'm in nitrox. Well, yeah, I'm you're just breathing, doing recreational You're breathing dives. a smarter gas. Yes, I'm in nitrox for sure. I'm taking care of myself. I'm staying super hydrated. And as the week goes on, I take longer and longer to do my my 20-foot or my 30-foot to the surface. I extend those. My 10 feet up goes almost three minutes just going from 10 feet up. Well, I mean, yes. I mean, so many divers, right, they're on holiday. So they're they're down there in Cozumel. Mm-hmm. And, well, the reef's down there at 40 feet. Yeah. You know, we're coming mm-hmm. up. Well, it's the very end of the dive. I didn't. They said I had to do a three-minute safety stop. So as soon as that's over. Just boom, boom, pop up. Pop mm-hmm. up, right? Because to so many divers, they're there for the stuff on the bottom and the dive, mm-hmm. and they don't realize they're, they are messing with the science of their body. The physiology is, is tremendously compromised. It's, uh, it's not what it was because it's absorbed so much inert gas, and it yeah. needs to. So even though, even though you're bored with out. the dive because you're just in blue water and there's, there's not any more cool mm-hmm. fish to see, doesn't mean you just go up and get out of the water and, and so that you can change tanks and get in for the next one. It's, right. you got to clean up your body. Mm-hmm. internally mm-hmm. and that's that's the last part of the dive and in my opinion the most important it's part critical. of the dive yeah it regardless critical. of yeah. you know 
seeing the eagle ray or or pictures of the eels or or you know getting the good photo of the shipwreck it's that last part of the dive that's the most critical and most important physiologically yes for your health for your own well-being again looking at a profile not just for that dive or not even just that day look at your profile over the week how how what have you done you how much have you taxed your body how much inert gas have you put in again all dives are decompression dives so even though you go diving and you come up and your computer says you could go diving again you still you're still bubbling you're still off gassing over the next day then you jump back in the water you accumulate some more you jump back in a second dive that day maybe a third dive now do that over a week your body's accumulating that the tissues especially the slow tissues are loading up and they're not able to off gas quick enough Uh, those are the kind of things i think are not addressed with just listening to your computer. And that's what I mean by, you know your body, you know what you've been doing all week, you know you're a little dehydrated, you know you're tired. All those things affect your ability to... Well, yeah, I mean, you need to be able to see beyond the computer display. Are you aerobically fit, too? Long I mean, that it's, right I mean everybody... I mean, and when I say everybody, I, I damn near mean everybody looks at that computer screen and goes... It says I have one more minute. Mm-hmm. I'm staying the yeah. one minute. Uh-huh. It says go to 15 feet. I'm going to 15, 15 feet. feet. And right. it says you're done with 15 feet. Boom, I'm on the surface. Yeah. See you later. Right. And they think, well, the, my computer said I was fine. Well, and you know what? 99.9% of the time. You, you know, might get away with it. Everything's fine. But, uh, again, I don't like what's not being reported to, James, is how did these people feel? I don't like feeling that way. I like diving, and I feel great the whole week after all of my dives. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody's just, you know, beaten up and haggard by day day four right. when, when they're doing those yeah. aggressive profiles like that. And they, they it, it doesn't correlate in their head of... Their fatigue is related to the amount of nitrogen they's, they've yeah. absorbed, and well, it's still you know, off gas. What the industry would call these asymptomatic... asymptomatic right, sorry. Yeah. Let's say that together. Asymptomatic, asymptomatic bent or, or asymptomatic, asymptomatic hits. hits. Yeah, boy, boy, boy. We and the hits keep rolling. We are on and coming at you with another top ten. Of the asymptomatic <laughs> hits. But yeah, an asymptomatic hit is that fatigue feeling, that general malaise, almost like a flu feeling. I've had it in my younger days of diving where I, I just have to go to bed. I just, you know, almost it's a slight fever, fatigue. Like, okay, I'm done. Uh, it goes away by the next day, but I don't like it. So uh, 85% of the reports specified the diver's degree of familiarity with the dive site where the incidents occurred. 44% of them occurred during the diver's first time at a dive site. 56 occurred during a return visit to the dive site. Almost half of the incidents took place during the first dive of the day. Three divers reported having made 3,000 or more lifetime dives. They, they've got all these statistics in the... Uh, incident reporting system so they go through the the experience of the divers the experience with the dive site Mm -hmm. their number of overall dives um the time of day where the dives occurred the visibility the altitude the severity of the outcome was declared in 98 percent of the cases 11 of the incidents involved they reported equipment failure um 64 percent involved in air supply problem 30 percent a buoyancy control problem nine percent a mask issue which are are really all like basic essential Mm -hmm. core skills uh that a diver shouldn't walk out of a open water class without having yes i agree a thousand percent you should be able to swim without a mask 
and breathe. Uh, they go through a bunch of, you know, uh, boating injuries, you know, when a, a dive boat hit a wave and a diver was thrown into the air, you know, a diver lost his balance and also lost his finger. Um, and they come back to a few um, more DCS cases, like uh, case 734, where a diver with possible DCS was worried about the cost of treatment. As he should be. I'm, uh, I'm 72 years old, began diving on Thursday. And most of the dives were relatively deep in the range of 90 to 120 feet, 27 to 37 meters. The first day I made three day dives and one night dive. I was wearing a 543 wetsuit on all of the dives. All surface intervals were two hours or more. For all dives, everybody on board was using 32%. Can I uh, interrupt yeah. here? The wearing of the 543 means absolutely nothing to me if I don't know the water temperature. Because if he's diving in 40-degree water, it's ridiculous. If he's diving in 90-degree water, it's probably equally ridiculous. But, I mean, to state that, I'm like, okay, you gave me information I can't use because he didn't finish it up. So I'm criticizing this report. What does that mean, 543? Where is he diving? What does it mean to me? What well, does it mean? <laughs> He was well. He was also wearing his blue blue fins, not his normal lime green ones. His green his green split fins were, were left in the closet. On Saturday, I noticed that I was feeling itchy on my torso after the second dive. I felt like scratching myself, but decided not to. After the third dive, which was a bit shallower, I noticed that I was no longer issue. This phenomenon repeated itself over the next five days. After two dives on Monday, I felt itchy again. On this particular day, we were given the option to visit an island or do a third dive. I opted to visit the island. After walking on the island for about an hour, the itchiness seemed to disappear. I suppose the smartest thing to do when I, when I felt I might be getting bent due to the itchiness was to request oxygen, which was available on the boat. I did not do this because I thought there might be an extra charge for using oxygen, and also I would be prevented from diving for the remainder of the trip as a safety precaution. This was the most expensive dive trip I had ever taken, and therefore, I did not want to have to stop diving. However, good common sense would have dictated that I was better to stop diving than be flown to a chamber at excessively high cost. So, uh, yeah, they, they went on, and uh, the, uh, the, the, the editor makes a comment on this, saying that mere itchiness without other signs or symptoms of DCS is not a common manifestation of DCS. Even so, the diver suspected that he had DCS. Then there are a number of risk reduction strategies that he might have considered, such as making shallower dives, ascending well before his no decompression limit, making fewer dives per day, and or taking longer, longer surface intervals. Dan also recommends that every diver carry adequate insurance when taking a dive holiday to greatly reduce economic concerns in situations such as this incident. So for the 99 bucks for your... Dan insurance or whatever whatever it is nowadays. I mean, I, I don't even look. It's just on auto renewal. You know, for for one of these weird things that just happens. You know, the the thousands, the, yeah. the tens of thousands of dollars of cost for a real emergency. Right. The peace of mind is nice to have too. I mean, think about it. If you it's a hundred bucks a year, twenty years you're gonna dive. So you spend two grand for peace of mind, knowing if you do need to be evac'd out, if you do need medical treatment. For any type of diving accident, whether it's a broken bone slipping on the boat to uh, decompression sickness or embolism or whatnot, a chamber ride's pricey. And a lot of regular, you know, your regular medical insurance that you get from your employer, or you, you 
purchase outright. It does not cover a chamber ride from a diving accident, you know? Right, right. All right, I got one you're going to like. I like them this, all. This is a out-of-gas one. Case 824, poor eyesight led to misreading a dive computer and running out of gas. Hmm. <laughs> what are you saying? It starts off, I'm a master instructor. With I'm over, a master instructor. With over 1,200 dives. With over 1,200 dives. And was diving with a master diver trainee. I shall train a master diver trainee. And on top of this, a newly qualified instructor. I shall also have a newly qualified instructor on top of this. With a little less than 120 dives. And that... Qualified, newly qualified instructor shall have less than 120 dives. Okay, okay, so uh, the deckhand questioned if my tank had been changed. All day, they had swapped my tank as soon as I came on board. I told them it was good, and, and I checked my air, and the tank pressure was 3,394 PSI, or 234 bar. Off I went, and shortly after... How many kilopascals? <laughs> and shortly after the three, and shortly after the other two followed, down to 52 feet and still descending, I felt my tank going dry. It was increasingly harder to draw air. Checked my gauge, and yep, I was out of air. Yep, I'm out of air. <laughs> I was, I looked up, then looked at the girls, both about four to five meters away. Hello, I, ladies. <laughs> I started tapping my tank. The instructor ignored me, but the trainee diver looked up. I began sending Morse code to these ladies. So I gave the out-of-air signal. We what swam- are you doing for dinner? We swam... We swam towards each other, and I took her reg, and she grabbed her octopus. We surfaced, and the instructor... <laughs> my wife grabbed my octopus. We now have four children. <laughs> We surfaced, and the instructor, who was my dive guide, came up with us. The surface crew swapped my tank, and off we went to finish our dive. What happened to his octopus? <laughs> so what happened? So what happened, do you want to know? So what happened, do you ask? Yeah, what happened? What happened? Well, when I am overseas, I use my dive computer with a tank contents transmitter. Interesting. I am in my early 50s and recently started wearing plus one reading glasses. I don't need them underwater due to magnification, so as I was gearing up, I did not have my glasses on. And when I checked my wristwatch slash gauged and read 234 bar... When it was 234. In fact, it was was 23.4 bar. The decimal point on the display is minute, and I couldn't see it. Nice. My decimal point is minute, and I cannot see this. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, that's, I don't know. I, what do you say about that? What can you say about that? I You can't assume. You can't assume. I mean, I can read what ha- what happened there and go, yeah, that would not ever happen to me for a number of reasons. For a number of reasons. Number one, I mean, right. I, I learned nearly 20 years ago to, to not trust a digital... I know. Digital transmitter gauge. And, and not that the, they, they don't work. It's just that more because they were a pain in the ass on well, 90% of the dives. And the simplicity of just having a, a analog gauge goes a long way. Uh, the caveat with that also is a an analog gauge can fail as well. All right? 
an analog gauge can be completely yes. I mean, there's, uh, useless. There's so many, so, I mean, there's so many variables right. in, into where this could go, but yes. Right, but electronics are electronics, and I guess that's the overall, uh, I guess, rule or whatever. Is It's not that I don't use them. I do use them, and I have to rely on them to a certain degree. But it's also accompanied with a lot of common sense, a lot of checks, a lot of you know backups. That's why to have a a uh, digital gauge with electronics and it's not working at all or it's showing, you, you still have to back it up with the analog. And although and I and you have to further back it up with your brain, right? right? So when you look at that gauge and that that's it, that needle's buried yeah. at thirty five hundred, and you go, oh, I got a great fill on, on this. On this dive, and then 20 minutes later, it's you look at the buried. gauge, and it's still buried at 3,500 psi. Yes. You go, I am doing here. really good on my air <laughs> consumption today. Yeah. This is what most people are doing because they they don't have that that uh, psychological training maybe as a diver. It, mm-hmm. That's maybe that's it, James. I uh, I don't know what to call it, but it's it's not just going by your your tools in the sense of your gauges, your depth gauge, whatever. Well, that's the difference you between use your brain. Well, that's ninety percent of the education out there teaches you to use equipment, right? And I mean, just trust it blindly. That's, yeah, that's yes. the class. Is you got to learn all this equipment. I would say you probably still don't know how to dive yet, right? Blind trust isn't good. I mean, you do have to trust your equipment, don't you? But to trust it blindly with with no thought going into well, if that's your the, if that's all you're doing, is right? Trusting the equipment, you're setting yourself up at some point for if, when for, a failure for, happens, you won't notice it. Because right, you have nothing else backing it up. So um, we had some weighting and uh, buoyancy problem issues, right? So uh, a weight belt fell off and caused an uncontrolled ascent. Can I make a comment yeah. still back on our trusting equipment? And I just want to make this like rebreather diver trusting equipment kind of thing, just because I've heard so many rebreather divers say, basically, I don't have to watch my gas. Now, what? What? I've got so of- much uh, this. Uh, this rebreather gives me so much gas. I don't even have to. I don't even. Yeah. I don't even have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, it's not even a factor, which I take as. And then, you're and then, not. and then you read a story about a rebreather dying in a swimming pool. Right in twenty feet of water, they're dying on training. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. So again, they do. I believe the breather divers have a have to put a lot more trust in their equipment, which in my mind would also mean you have to put a lot more trust in your common sense and and common sense isn't the right word, but your thought process in diving, your thinking in diving. And you'd have Well to, yeah, and, and most people are gonna say, well they kind of go hand in hand, but I'm gonna go, no. you know, no, one kind of should come before the other. And I think the majority of the industry puts the equipment in right. front of the brain rather than what you and I routinely say is, no, the brain should be first, and then your equipment then is there as the, as the backup. Exactly. The, uh, I don't even think the majority of the industry says, hey, equipment, great. It's there to, to reaffirm what you should already know kind of thing, you know, like breathing gas. I've, I've been at such and such a feet for such and such minutes. I know I should be at such and such PSI. Look down. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty damn close. That kind of thing, you know. K716. Toward the end of the dive, at about 20 feet, 6 meter depth, my weight belt fell off. The buckle came loose from the strap. I exhaled and dumped air from my dry suit as quickly as possible and tried to flare my body to increase drag. My dive buddy tried to grab me, but I was dragging him up too. I surfaced and power inflated my BCD. Another diver in our party brought my weight belt up and I tried to put it on at the surface. But that is when I realized that the strap had come out of the female side. We therefore aborted the dive and did a surface swim to the exit point. I am fine 
and I'm just glad it didn't happen at 66 feet. Here's one uh, for us here uh, recently. A case 706, an inflator caused a runaway ascent under thick ice. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a, that can be a tough one. While diving in a frozen lake, the ring around my power inflator button started spewing bubbles and filling my BCD faster than I could dump the air. The hose connecting my BCD would not disconnect as it was frozen. My rapid ascent to the top resulted in a ruptured eardrum. I kept my cool head and did my best to slow my ascent by holding down the purge button. However, air was entering my BCD faster than it could escape. There was just under three feet of ice on the lake. I hit the ice overhead, then followed my line back to the hole. The power inflator button was still pliable. However, bubbles were coming out from around its rim, and depressing it did nothing. The vest continued to inflate and purge out the overflow valve until my friends on the surface were able to disconnect the power inflator hose. So this is a, a, just a common thing you got to be ready yeah, for uh, on ice diving, you know, and especially those inflators with the little uh, soft malleable uh, button with the schrader valve right underneath them when that schrader valve goes i mean air is going to blow out of both sides of that thing that's going to bl- blow that little button up like a balloon and pop it but even the even the ones on a typical you know tech inflator with the with the o-ring seals i mean those do have a, a chance of freezing and doing a constant inflate and you got to be able to get that gas to that inflator shut off yes we experienced this firsthand just on our recent ice dives where the uh, free flow on the inflator happened. And yes, it's a, it's not an uncommon occurrence in extremely cold surface, and then you get into the water. And that's the big one right there is just the, the pre-dive more than anything. Right, exactly. And that's part of your ice diving. But here's course. another one of our classics. Here's another one of our classics. Um, case 710, a diver turned her valve off instead of on. While diving with my buddy in Florida, I noticed that upon each inhalation, the needle of my submersible pressure gauge fluctuated. The needle dipped down and each breath, the needle dipped down with each breath before returning to the correct PSI reading from my tank. I continued diving while keeping a close eye on my gauge. And upon reaching a depth of approximately 55 feet, 17 meters, it suddenly became very difficult for me to breathe. I looked at my SPG mid-breath and saw the needle drop down to zero PSI and it did not readily move back up. I felt like there was no more air available to me, even though I knew there was at least 1,200 PSI in my tank. I signaled out of air to my buddy, used her alternate regulator. We made a controlled ascent to the surface, and I was not injured. Upon inspecting my gear, I realized that instead of turning my tank all the way on and half a turn back, I had turned it all the way off and half a turn on. Upon reaching a depth below 33 feet, I had experienced inadequate air pressure delivery from my tank to my regulator because the tank was barely on and could not continue to, to deliver the same volume of air at increased pressure. I mean, this is a tale as old as time. <laughs> Do you work for Disney? Yeah. Yeah, it's not an, un- it's not an uncommon event that, you, you know, it, you see it. Do you, you see people? Well, you Another I mean, you reason see it, I don't you see like it on the dive boat. Valves, yeah. Well, I mean, you see it on the dive boat with the dive master accidentally shutting a valve off and just cracking it open. Yes. Uh, behind your back, yeah. like thinking he's helping you out, but in you know he's got so much going on uh, on the surface that it happens, you know. Yeah. Uh, but let alone you know, like just like hanging out around the 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 local diving hole, diving quarry. You know, you and your buddy going diving and. You're a little rusty, and and you're doing things the wrong way. 
And I know a lot of divers, I mean, I see a lot of divers that are bringing their tanks in for a fill, and I'll turn their valve on, and it's two, three turns before, because they've crushed that seat down so <laughs> yeah. deep. That yeah, it's it's that. a couple of turns before that valve actually even opens up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, th- this is uh, something that goes through my mind on, you know, every dive where there's a dive master touching my valves. And I know you, I think you're the same way. I don't know. You know I'm not well, I, I just get in the water and then do it. I, I do just a assume, quick valve check. I always yeah. assume he that he turned it off every single, I mean, especially every, with twins. Yeah, every single dive, I just assume that the dive master just turned my stuff off as I jumped in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. So let's uh, let's wrap this uh, let's show up here a little bit. Um, yes. So in conclusion, let us shall. Let us shall. In conclusion, the value of the Dan reporting system continues to grow every year. Now, to recap, they say that it appears as though the majority of reported incidents occurred during the first day of diving often at an infamiliar dive site, and that the majority were reported by relatively newly trained divers. It must be remembered, however, that these reports were made voluntarily and therefore should not be thought of as a survey of random divers. Incidents apt to seem more important to, or um, incidents apt to seem more important to divers are more likely to be reported, even though they may not be the most common incidents in diving. And this may explain why the most common reported injury was decompression sickness when that is, in fact, much rarer than, for example, ear barrel trauma, right, which just goes unreported. Ah, you injured your eardrum. Take it easy. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make it to Dan either, yeah. Correct, Mm -hmm. right. Once again, uh, reported equipment problems were largely those affecting buoyancy and breathing gas. And these two issues are of obvious importance to divers. As the case vignettes illustrate, many but not all such problems could have been avoided. The value of training is apparent. After training is over, Dan then recommends maintaining proficiency in the relevant skills through regular practice. Mentions in a few reports of rusty skills such as with the weight belt, adjustment are also good learning points for divers to consider. And reports of injuries happening on boats remind us all to be safety conscious on the way to and from a dive site, not only when we're in the water. Boom. Bam. There's the uh, there's the Dan 2018 incident report, which, again, most of this stuff is from the 2015 time frame. The God Dan. The God Dan annual report. Mm-hmm. There is, um, there's more to it than that. I mean, so, again, like, like I said before, you know, you can go to diversalertnetwork.org forward slash medical forward slash report forward slash index dot ASP and uh, you can download it there. Um, if you're not a Dan member already, gosh darn it, get out there and get your membership. God, uh, this has got... Like God a, damn it. Like I said, <laughs> God damn it. Not only the diving fatalities and injuries, but it goes through the whole diving incident reporting system, breath hold injuries, um, injury surveillance, uh, a 30-year recap, um, breath holding incidents. Um, there's a lot of, lot of good good stuff. I mean, does it's it, well over 100 pages long of, does it of have, reporting. Does it have uh, the toddler rebreather? No, they're, 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 uh, they're going to do that as an addendum in 2019. Okay. Well, that's a whole report in and of itself. Correct. They gotta they gotta wait for them to get old enough to talk. Well, the training is rigorous, first of all. So there's not a lot of accidents. They're pretty good. They, they oh, there's go accidents through. with toddlers. Well, <laughs> that's true. But different kinds of accidents is what's gonna be relevant to us. 
Well, hey, thanks for uh, thanks for uh, joining us in this three part series of the Dan of the Goddan annual diving report. Which yes, it's a three part series. So if you really liked the Goddan annual report, you got three episodes out of it. So you're you got to be like yes. But if you were like, I'm tired of the Goddan annual report after episode one. <laughs> Uh, you're now like, yes, we're finally done with the goddamn. So either way, either it's way, a win-win. It be, this is episode three is a win for <laughs> for everybody. So thanks again to uh, everybody on uh, Facebook and Patreon and emailing us with questions and comments. We appreciate them and uh, always have fun uh, chatting with you guys. Yes, all of our supporters. Thank you. All right, gang. Till next time. Oh. Wait, wait, no, we we finally can sign logbooks. Oh yes, we gotta sign this. This, this was a long ass dive. Here, here, here's yeah. my book. We okay. sign it. Get well soon, love, Sammy. I good dive, B. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Safe diving. Do you think that's what he did, or do you think he was like? wasn't noticing that he's place downtown Plymouth that sells food for, you know, like pastries for your dog. And they're more expensive than if I wanted to go oh, grab a yeah. donut, you know, at the at the bakery downtown. Um, just people are lined up. They're lined up on the weekend mornings to, to get their dog a little, you know, craft, I need, uh, craft I need to baked. Get... <laughs> Rover needs his... His gluten-free donut, you know, like he needs his gluten-free puppy croissant. Is there anything in his natural diet that says donut? I'm, I'm just every day. I'm just amazed. I used to be more upset about it. Now I'm just laughing. I'm just laughing. It's, it's comical. You have to, you have to laugh, or you'll cry. But hey, at least we have the Great Dive Podcast. Good French roast coffee. There is great French roast coffee. The dog coffee shop. Hey. There we go. That's dog a good, coffee. Dog coffee. The great Pet dog coffee, coffee shop. <laughs>